My name is Leslie. I'm a physical therapist, and I am coming from Rochester, Minnesota, from the Mayo Clinic. Um, so I, I must give you a couple disclaimers before I start. Oh, I left my notes back there. Um, hold on. I'm attached here. Okay. Um, that I want to get to know you a little bit. So I'll tell you a little bit about myself, but then I also feel like I need to know you to know if I need to pitch my PowerPoint and just kind of go off my cuff or if we're okay. So um, I am, um, I've been a PT now for five plus years-ish and um, went to the University of, or went to Taylor University for undergrad. Then you went to the University of Iowa for PT school. And then I worked at the Rehab Institute of Chicago for a time period before coming to Mayo. Um, I am now 100% outpatient pediatrics and absolutely love my job. Um, it is, we have a very interesting, I have a very interesting caseload that's probably different than most places, which is how I'm basing a lot of my talk, actually. I have not, since being a physical therapist, actually been overseas to do missions work. However, I see probably 30% of the patients that I see are from overseas, and so I am frequently seeing um, children who have had very minimal interventions despite their disabilities, and so I'm seeing the worst of the worst. I'm seeing what happens when they don't have the care that we have in America, and so that's kind of where I'm basing what I'm going off of. I've also talked with colleagues and things who have been overseas, so please stop me if you have questions. Um, but that's kind of where I'm going. Dr. Fisher gave me the task. He said, why don't you talk about physical therapy for kids with spina bifida and cerebral palsy? If you know anything, that is like the broadest topic that you could give a pediatric physical therapist. Um, I could talk for three hours on any one slide that I have for CP and for spina bifida because they're quite different. So... If, I, if it feels like I'm extremely vague, I am. I have 40 minutes to do my entire career, essentially. So I've tried to make it practical. I've tried to make it also such that um, my thinking more in formulating this talk was I'm gearing this more so if you're doing a short-term mission stint, what are the most important things that you can take to the people that you're working with? Um, as opposed to thinking that you're going to be there for a year and getting to really work on trunk control for this child. Does that make sense? So I'm kind of thinking, what things can you teach the family members or the caregivers that are, te that are with these people to really make a difference in this child's life? Does that kind of make sense? So that's, those are my disclaimers. So please tell me if it's not geared towards what you want. Stop me in the middle if you have questions. Whatever. I'm just... I want this to be helpful. So tell me, how many therapists are in the room? Good. How many students are in the room? Okay. Perfect. Okay. That helps. Um, so first of all, oh, and then tell me, how many pediatric therapists are in the room? Okay. I'll be honest. This talk is not for you. <laughs> Your friend, oh, we can make it for you, right? But I was assuming that that would not be the largest portion of who I was talking to. So, um, um, so my objectives are to give you some ideas of intervention for these kids, how to accomplish that in in a setting of limited resources, 
as well as just basics of treatment equipment, seating, and bracing. Um, so cerebral palsy, for those of you that don't know, is an injury to the brain that occurs around birth or up to the first two to three-ish years of life. So it's not progressive, meaning that once the injury occurs to the brain, the injury is done. Um, that doesn't mean that they aren't going to have long-term complications of that initial injury, but nothing in their brain is changing. And then um, CP, the definition of it technically means that it's going to affect their motor control and coordination. There are a huge, there's a huge range of kids that you will see with cerebral palsy, ranging from totally mild impairment. They may just be tiptoe walkers and have cerebral palsy, but there's nothing wrong with them cognitively or anything else. Then you may have the child who is, um, has involvement of all four limbs. They can't hold their head up. They can't eat. Um, and again, they may have totally normal or very impaired cognition. So this is a huge range of people that we're talking about. Um, so this slide just kind of shows where in the brain the injury occurs and then, therefore, what happens. So you'll hear people talk about um, somebody having hemiplegic CP, meaning half of their body is involved, or diplegic, meaning their legs are involved, quadriplegic, tetraplegic, meaning all four limbs are involved. So there are just different phrases that you will hear um, when in regards to cerebral palsy. Again, each kind of cerebral palsy is a huge topic in and of itself. Basically, as a physical therapist, the things that I'm most concerned about in treating somebody with CP is the spasticity that is a result of the injury in the brain. So um, a spastic muscle is one that is going to, um, it resists a stretch. So there's, it's kind of like an involuntary reaction of the muscle. Most commonly, you're going to find spasticity in hip flexors, adductors, hamstrings, and gastrocs. Um, what happens then is because a child's hamstrings are really spastic, they're firing more often than they should be, um, your, the opposite muscle is going to become weak. And so my goal as a, as a pediatric therapist is to stretch the spastic muscle and to strengthen the opposing muscle to counteract that, that spasticity. So then, conversely, if, I'm, if those are the spastic muscles, then I'm going to be strengthening the glute max, the glute med, the quadricep, and the anterior tibialis. The primary long-term complications of CP that you could think of would be contractures when the joint then is, um, I'm not able to straighten my knee because the joint is too tight. Debility, because they're obviously less active than you and I would be. Pain from the contractures, from the muscle spasms, from pressure sores, from multiple things that they could get pain. Pressure sores and bony malalignment. When our bones are forming, when you and I are standing, that helps to form our bone, bones as we're developing. If I have a spastic muscle pulling on my bone, it's also going to affect the alignment of that bone. So a lot of these kids in the States would end up having surgery to correct that alignment. Let's go to the other side, spina bifida. Spina bifida, then, is um, an injury that occurs 
around the fourth or fifth week of pregnancy. So a lot of times before people even know that they're pregnant, um, the neural tube won't close correctly. And so then you get essentially an opening in the spinal column, um, and you'll get a little outpouching of stuff. That stuff could be nothing important. It may just be a little pouch. It may include part of the spinal cord, um, and it can be at various levels. So depending on how high it is, the higher it is, the higher the the more impaired the child is going to be because there are more nerves involved. Again, it's not progressive in the fact that once the injury occurs, it's done. The complications are progressive because of the side effects. So whereas with CP, you have spasticity, so the muscles really um, are overactive, with spina bifida, you're going to get more weakness because the nerves going to the muscles are impaired. So, and it's also going to affect the nerves that provide the sensation to those muscles. Um, very frequently, this is also accompanied by hydrocephalus. Um, so here's a picture of a defect that occurs. These are normally corrected um, within the first two days of life. After the child is born, they will surgically correct these. There is a new study that you may have just came out in the New England Journal that they're doing now intrauterally. Um, the mom's child is what they're, they're seeing if, um, if they correct the lesion around, you know, 23 to 28 weeks in utero, is there an improvement? And it seems like there is an initial improvement, although it does increase a lot of complications too. So stay posted on that. But that's not my area. Um, so the main characteristics of spina bifida then are going to be weakness, again, depending on where that lesion occurs. Because they're kind of the opposite. So almost always these kids have glute max weakness because that's the lowest muscle group as far as neural innervation. And so they're, but their hip flexors are very strong. So they can hip flex, hip flex, hip flex, but they can't oppose that with their hip extensors. So therefore, almost 100% of these kids have hip flexor tightness. So... Um, that's where they're going to get the joint contractures from the unopposed muscles, not because of the spastic muscles, if that makes sense. Um, They will have sensation changes, which we'll talk about a little bit more later. Frequently they're shunted, depending on where you're treating. Are they going to be shunted in third world countries? Likely not. Um, And then they're going to have bowel and bladder considerations also because of where the lesion is. That's your bowel and bladder under a lot of even your leg functioning. And so you're going to, a lot of these patients are cathing themselves or things like that, which gets to be a problem in third world countries as well because there are serious medical complications for kids with spina bifida. More so, I would say, than kids with cerebral palsy because cerebral palsy doesn't, they may be impaired motor-wise, but they're not necessarily going to have the medical complications of being untreated that you will if you have spina bifida. If you're not calfing regularly or appropriately or clean, or have the appropriate cleanliness with that, then you can get huge infections that are obviously going to cause life-threatening illnesses. Um, if they have a shunt, then being in a, you know, depending on where they are and the medical care that they have, it's not uncommon for these kids to have several shunt revisions throughout their life. And so if that's happening where they don't have medical care and attention, then it can be 
life-threatening. And they can also get a tethered cord, which wouldn't I wouldn't say would be life-threatening to these kids, but it's definitely going to impair their motor function. If they get um, kind of a tightening of the lower end of their spinal cord, kind of with some scar tissue and things, and then it can cause um, a decrease in their motor function, even more than what they have. So then the long-term complications of spina bifida would be the same, very, very similar to cerebral palsy, with the addition of um, they frequently have weight problems. With cerebral palsy, their muscles are so spastic, they're almost hyperactive, and they will oftentimes have problems with weight gain, so they will be small children. Whereas with spina bifida, it is very easy to get an overweight child because they're not very active. And if they are propelling themselves, they are definitely at risk of shoulder dysfunction as they age because they're using their arms for their mobility. So what is our role in therapy? Um, these are the kind of the things I'm going to go over in a little bit more depth. Again, you're going to say, oh my goodness, you're just vaguely going over them. I am. So stop me if you have more questions or more specific questions, or if you've seen people overseas that you have questions about, then I'm happy to address those specifically. So um, if you're talking about a child with cerebral palsy, stretching in general, every child is going to be different. But if I was to... Um, grossly say the muscles that need to be stretched for a child with cerebral palsy would be hip flexors, hamstrings, adductors, and gastrocs. More or less of those. Focusing on the lower extremities. Upper extremities may or may not have involvements as well. Spina bifida is going to definitely be more, um, more variable because that level, the level could be so different. Always, always they need hip flexor stretching. Um, frequently, I would say they need knee extension strengthening. It may not necessarily be a hamstring tightness, but a knee extension problem. And then their feet. And their feet can be deformed in multiple ways. As far as positioning and pressure relief, um, this is key. I think this is one of the biggest things as we're thinking about how do you treat these people in places with limited resources. And pressure sores would be a huge one, because if they get a pressure sore, then they cannot be sitting. They have to be immobilized quite a bit in order to get that to heal. Otherwise, the risk of infection is huge. Once you get an infection, then that can be definitely life-threatening. Um, so so I would, if I could tell you one thing for overseas, this would probably be it. This, can, this you're going to have to be creative with, too. They may or, not, may, may or may not have a wheelchair, but if they do, then certainly wheelchair push-ups are an easy way to teach people to get pressure relief. The important thing to think about is spina bifida, because there's also sensation changes, they can't feel. And so if they've been sitting on their bottom for 12 hours in the day and they're starting to get a pressure sore, they're not going to feel it like you or I, who we're constantly wiggling around and moving around because we feel that we're kind of getting falling asleep. Um, they don't feel that. So it's important for them to understand that they need to do this even if they're not feeling uncomfortable. Sometimes it may be putting a timer on people's chairs to remind them because they may not even have the cognition to realize or to remember to do it regularly. Um, so it may take a family member reminding them. It may take, but something has to be in place to remind them 
to relieve themselves of pressure. Bed positioning is also important. Some of them, if they're sick, if they've had um, complications, or if they don't have a chair to sit in, then we also need to think about bed positioning um, while they're just laying down. Because, again, if they're staying in one position for multiple hours in a row, then they're going to be at risk of complicating pressure sores. Um, and... There are lots of ways to think about it, but the bony prominences are what we're worried about. So if they're laying on their side, watching their hips, watching the lateral malleolus, watching um, their shoulders, if they're laying on their back, watching their coccyx area, especially if they're kind of in a reclined position, watching the back of their heels. So pillows can be hugely helpful um, to decrease some of that pressure, but that's not going to be everything. You must change their position completely in order to get true pressure relief. Um, and I would say um, every four to six hours is pretty limited, too. Some people will tell you more than that, but I think you can't be too unrealistic or families are going to just really bulk at it and not do it, too. So I think you have to be realistic. And then to teach them to do um, skin checks. Um, because if, they, if they're walkers and they have spina bifida, their feet are hugely at risk, especially walking on the terrain of a third world country, let's say. They're hugely at risk of, um, you know, something simple happening to their foot that would to you and I too, but it's not going to heal the same as it is for you and I. And then, obviously, if they're immobile, making sure you're doing press, pressure checks too. Um, some things that I have... Um, I mean, there are incredibly expensive tools for positioning, right? If you pick up a Salmon's Preston's magazine, you can find all kinds of positioning options. Um, they're not costly, uh, or they are costly. They're not cost-effective. So you can also use just, like, coffee cans rolled up. Put a towel on the outside. Be creative with what you find in the home to kind of just get pressure off and to change positions. It doesn't matter how you get it done unless that thing is causing another point of pressure. Um, but you can be pretty creative with limited resources and how you're positioning something. Um, does that help? Do you have questions about positioning? So seating is then another big issue. This is tough because how much do you have this overseas? And if you do have it, do you have the choice of customizing it? Probably not. If I was to choose a seat for somebody, here are some of the most important concepts. I want somebody sitting in a 90-90 position, meaning I want their hips at a 90-degree angle and then their legs at a 90-degree angle. That's optimal positioning. I would rather have somebody sitting in a seat that is too short for them than one that is too long for them. If I'm sitting in something that's too long, in order to get my feet appropriately positioned or comfortably positioned, I'm going to have to really kind of sacral sit and kind of sit like we all sit. But if you don't have sensation, then that's detrimental to you. Um, and we can straighten ourselves back up for a time period and then kind of slouch back down. But I see kids all the time sitting in a huge chair because that's all that's available. There are very limited pediatric resources. So it's a number one thing we do for kids that come over from a third world country, is get them a new seat because it's horrible. 
Ideally, I don't want them sitting on a sling seat because then I kind of roll their hips in and they can't move at all within it. So if you can get something that's a little bit more firm, I would almost rather see them on something, you know, put like a piece of wood or something on the seat itself and then put, you know, maybe you put a small little pillow or some kind of little cushion foam type thing over that. I would rather that than having a sling seat that really kind of encompasses them. Um, so, um, so that seat depth is really, really probably the most key thing. Uh, yeah? It, it's good to know this for working with Johnny and Fred's Wheels for the World because they bring wheelchairs from different parts of the world about the U.S. and refurbish them in prisons and send them in carts out to different countries like Estonia mm. and all that, you know, and you have to fit these children right. to this wheelchair and you've got to have this. Yes. You're right, and I, I know why people do it, because they think, oh, I have a chair to get a child, I want it to fit them for years to come. But if you give them a chair that will fit them in five years, then you've ruined their posture, you've ruined their trunk control, you've done so many more detrimental things, even though they will outgrow their chair faster, I would much rather that compared to the detrimental effects of a seat depth that's too long. It's interesting. We sometimes got a chair we have only made for only one person and only one person. Nobody's going to fit to that. And here comes a child. It fits it perfectly. Yeah. And it's only God. That's <laughs> so true. <laughs> yeah. Seating is really, really hard because, you know, in the States, we're thinking about how high up do I want the chair because if the child can use their legs, I want them sitting low to the ground so that they can use their legs to help propel as well as their arms. I want this seat, I don't want it too wide because you can't, you can't propel a chair out here. You know, so there are so many options in positioning, but you're going to be limited over there. Um, if I'm thinking about a child, so... Obviously, a child with spina bifida typically has pretty good trunk control or can sit fairly well. Um, whereas if you get a child with cerebral palsy that's really impaired, they may even have minimal head control. But it is still so, so, so important for them to be upright and sitting as much as possible. Um, so ways to do that are to put the chair in a little bit of a recline position. Is that a possible overseas it just depends on what your what resources you have available. But that's ideal. If you can kind of get them sitting up and tilted, not reclined. So the chairs that have that reclined feature are horrible, but if they have that tilt feature where they keep that 90-90 position, then that's, that's optimal. Um, and then if they don't have head control, this is the number... Mm, this is one of the huge things I see from kids coming over that have been totally untreated. I have one little boy, Abdullahi, who came to us from a Somali refugee camp. Um, he was probably 10-ish by the time his family was able to come over to the States. Um, and he is shaped like his mom's lap. He's never been sitting in anything but his mom's lap. His poor little head is so extended. I don't know how he swallows at all or how he does, has not had aspiration pneumonia. He probably has had it several times, but how he has not died from it at this point. Um, so um, to get him sitting upright because he's almost contracted in a cervical extended position, he's never had 
he's never been able to keep his head up. Um, so we just, if you provide a lot of chest support and a lot of posterior support at their shoulders and their upper chest and then provide a good headrest, you can really keep these kids, even that want to really extend back, that are hard to position, you can get them in a nice upright position. They're safer for swallowing. They can interact with the world rather than with the ceiling. It makes them so much more functional. Doing that in a third world country is going to be more challenging. Um, I have um, used, for kids that may not tolerate strapping, you can even use ACE wraps around chairs if you need more chest support but don't have necessarily the expensive strapping that we have here. So you can kind of use a strap to really keep them upright in the chair. Um, if I was going overseas, a strap is one of the things that I would take because you can use it for so many different things, um, including positioning. And I'll get to some other uses up for it in a little bit too. So what do you mean by a strap? A strap? No worries. Um, the brown stretchy kind of that you would like ankle sprains, you may use it for anti-edema, things like that. Thank you for clarifying. <laughs> um, so here are just some measurements to consider with positioning. Again, how, much of the, how many options will you have if you're overseas with limited resources? I don't know. Um, but in an ideal situation, this is kind of all that we're kind of taking in in the States to kind of get the optimal positioning for a child. Bracing. This one is probably the hardest. This is, I'm going to kind of dwell the le least on this because bracing in the United States um, or in any country with good health care um, is the most custom. So can I transition one of our braces here to a third world country would be really challenging without creating other complications because of the sensation changes and the pressure of braces. So ideally, I'm using braces to improve gait. Although I can use it for positioning too. If a child is quite immobile and I really want to maintain their foot position, I can put a brace on them to keep their toes up because when we're in bed, our toes are dropping, and so um, it's not great for positioning. So... Um, so for kids with spina bifida, I would say this is probably, this is one of the number one things for how ambulatory are they? How well can I brace them and support their foot and knee while they are walking despite their muscle weakness? This is probably the thing you have the least access to in a third world country, um, would you say? Um, and so therefore, right, I, I think that it's sad because I think that in, in, in America, with kids with disabilities, we have a lot of kids walking that would never be ambulatory in a third world country because you don't have access to bracing and the appropriate supportive devices. Yeah, that's amazing. I have run across a couple here and there that I hear about, um, but there are few. And the hard thing with pediatric bracing is that. I mean, kids are growing, and so we're changing braces every 6 to 12 months. Once they get older, maybe 18 months, but it's changing so often. So you get a brace, and it's not going to last a pediatric child very long. Um, so I'm not sure that this is super. We can certainly talk more about bracing is huge, but I just don't know how much it applies in this setting. Wound care. 
here's a huge disclaimer. I'm a pediatric physical therapist. I am not a wound care physical therapist. So I got all this information from my wound care therapists. Um, but if I see a wound on one of my kids, I send them to them because I don't know what to do. So here are a couple of basics. Um, a lot of times overseas, you're going to see wounds that are very dried out because they're not covered with anything. And so the key is to get a bacitracin or a petroleum-type jelly on the wound bed so that you can actually see what's going on. Um, because until that, that a dry wound bed, you can't, tell, you can't tell anything that's going on. So put the petroleum jelly on it to moisten it and then assess what's really happening. Um, Band-aids don't stay in place in places that are hot and humid and dirty and not dirty, like um, dusty. That's a thank you. Um, so Bannet and Coban can both be used to kind of keep petroleum. You know, if you put like a gauze covering over something, or um, to be can be used to keep things in place. The Coban is also. Um, I don't know if you know Coban. Coban is kind of that stretchy, thin um, stuff. Do you know Coban? Is that one? Oh, I don't know how to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and it sticks to itself, right? And you can put, you can kind of do the same thing with A-strap, but an A-strap is going to be a little bit hotter and a little bit more cumbersome than Coban is. Coban will stay in place a little bit better. Um, but you can also use it for anti-edema if there is swelling associated with something. And then Xeroform is a great antibacterial moistening agent as well. So if you're doing wound care and need to take a couple of things in your pouch for wound care, this is what I've told would be a good bucket for you to take for wounds. So I'm not. If you have more wound questions, email me, and I can send you on to the person that can answer them. Do you? Yeah. Sure. Honey? Honey. Oh, interesting. go. Just use honey. Don't even take petroleum with you. It's about the same consistency. That's right. 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 Yeah. That's right. Equipment. I'm going to give you a couple of tips. From my experience, um, again, kind of, if, as a pediatric physical therapist, in America, equipment is one of the largest components of my job because our kids have standards, they have wheelchairs, they have mobile wheelchairs, they have 
floor sitters, they have specialized wheelchairs, they have all kinds of stuff. You don't have access to that um, in limits, when you have limited resources. So Quickie Sunrise does have very good international services, especially in the Middle East. Um, they have a lot of a lot of dealers over there. You understand what I'm saying, relatively speaking. Um, so if I'm going with like a manual wheelchair for somebody, I'll frequently go with a quickie if I know that they're going back to that area of the world just because I know that they can get it access or can get it can get maintenance to it. Riften and Winsalite. Um Riften is one of my favorite pediatric dealers. Um, they have some really nice equipment. But they are also really now, if everybody in the room goes and calls them, they're going to say, we can't do this anymore. It seems like they are very willing to work with us. We do a lot of charity care at Mayo. Um, and so if I call them and kind of talk with them about our charity cases, they will frequently give us equipment um, or at least give it to us for hugely discounted prices. Um, so they seem to be very, very kind in there um, as they're, uh, to deal with um, Winsalite has, they advertise that they make knockoff products so that they can make it for cheaper. So they mimic Riften so that they can make it for a little bit less. Um, so I typically find that, you know, cost-effective-wise, they're a pretty good choice if you have some access to some funds that you're trying to get something. It's a wise use of money. Um, some of their products are not as good, but some of them really are. Some of them are just fine. Goodwill Easter Seals is also, um, all of the Goodwills, they kind of have an Easter Seals component of it where you can drop off old equipment um, to be used for somebody else. So, but they also recycle their loan closets. And so there have been times where we've had this sitting on our floor for three to six months. We're going to chuck it because nobody wants it. So it seems like if you're going overseas, the hard part is transporting it over there um, once you do have it. But, you know, it may be an option that you connect with a goodwill before you go to see if they have equipment that they're just going to chuck that maybe you can take with you would be of value if you're going overseas. Um, and then I was trying to think, if I had to take three things with me, what would I want? And I think, I think, I, it took me a long time to decide these. I've had them on and off the list. Definitely an exercise ball would be one. Um, but that's more, again, for treatment if I was seeing somebody long term as opposed to if I was seeing somebody one time. Um, a walker. It is amazing the amount of kids that will come to us from various countries across the world that I give them a walker and off they go. Um, they, but if they don't have access to that, then they can't walk. They don't have the balance. They don't have the stability. But if they just had a simple little walker, I don't even care if it perfectly fits. Um, they can walk and have mobility. And then I would say a bench. So I would say for, you know, because I can use a little bench for kids that are 6 months to 18 months old to really work on trunk control, to work on pulling to tall kneeling, pulling to stand, cruising type skills. But then I can also transition that to older kids and work on bench sitting for trunk control. I can work on um, pulling to stand with them depending on – Rifton has these great benches that are – you can, like, undo the sides and their multiple heights. They're fabulous. They're way too expensive. Um, but something like that would be really nice to be able to transition to lots of different kids. Um, this is a 
I don't know if I can say fairly new, but it's a, um, they're advertising as being made for third world countries. I tried to find how much it's running, and I had a hard time really deciphering how much. Have you seen it? Do you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. You can't repair these. I'm sure they go over rough terrain fabulously, but they still seem too, too custom and too complicated. So, um, but just so you know, that's. Um, some of the other things that I think are really important to consider as I, I look at the kids that I've seen. Um, Teaching family members how to transfer kids. So if they can bear weight, really teaching them a nice stand pivot transfer. If they can't bear weight, then teaching them a nice lift to keep themselves safe as well as the patient safe. And I think this is huge, huge, huge to learn. So again, this could be a two-hour talk in and of itself. How do you transfer patients of different abilities, um, different sizes, that kind of thing. So, But that's so important as you're kind of considering what to do for that family. If you can teach them a better way to transfer, that will impact the rest of their life, especially as they consider, you know, it's very different to have a one-year-old that's pretty impaired versus a seven-year-old versus a 15-year-old. You know, those are very different sizes of kids that it would be nice for them to be educated on how to handle them best. Um, Swallowing is not necessarily a PT thing, um, but it's something huge I see when, again, so many of these kids are in this position because they don't have head control. And so if we can just teach them to tip their heads down, get their their esophagus in a more neutral position. If you try swallowing back here, it's really challenging. So you're really putting them at risk. Um, and then a lot of times they may need to thicken their liquids to make them safe. Teaching them the signs of, you know, coughing and sputtering after eating, then, you know, they may not be controlling their secretions well or the food that you're giving them well. And so making them safer with um, what they're putting in their mouth. Um, and Communication is huge. A lot of these kids can't communicate, but they could. Um, a lot of them are, are more cognitively intact than we'll give them um, credit for. And so I think, you know, even teaching families simple yes-no questions or ways to get kids to answer yes-no questions or making a picture board with, you know, eating, playing, sleeping, type of options for them to pick from. Things like that that can be done pretty simply, but just educating the family so that they can interact with their child a little bit more. Um, I didn't talk at all about upper extremities, um, but that is also something that's really huge. A lot of these um, kids will end up with hands that are pretty fisted, and so if we can keep them open, we'll keep them more functional, keep them being able to feed themselves better, participate in ADLs. And um, so, it, you know, one of the um, therapists that goes overseas a lot says so she does a ton of cardboard and Coban splints and just puts a simple piece of cardboard here to keep their wrist in a more neutral position, keep their fingers slightly extended, wrap some Coban around it, and teach them to put that on at nighttime as a resting night splint. And it's simple. Um, but it can hugely impact their functioning then in the long term. And then, um, I mean, ideally I would love these kids up walking or, you know, um, having independent mobility with a chair or something like that. 
as much as that's possible for being creative and formulating that gives these kids a sense of independence um, and I think gives their families some hope too that their child is not quite so dependent. Some of the things that um, I've mentioned a couple of these the ACE wrap or the Coban, you could certainly use as a modified brace to kind of hold somebody in a neutral position. You may not have a formal AFO, but if they have foot drop where their foot is just dropping and they're tripping on their toes, I can hold their foot in this position. If I wrap them tight enough, not too tight that you're cutting off circulation, but tight enough to give their foot support so that they're tripping less often may make them safe. And if you can teach the family how to put that on in the morning, they go all day with it. That can really affect their function um, over time. Um, again, the splinting for the upper extremities, you can use that for the feet too to put that or to keep their foot in a neutral position. If your foot is not in a neutral position, it's hard to stand. Um, and it's hard to position you, too. And it's hard to do a stand pivot transfer if you can bear weight. So I, I've seen two or three teenage boys with spina bifida come over um, that by the time they get to us, their feet are so deformed, they're coming over for surgery. Whereas if we had had simple braces on their feet to keep their feet in a neutral position, they would have been able to participate in a stand pivot transfer. They would be able to wear shoes to keep their feet safe. They would be so much more functional even though they don't stand and walk necessarily. It's still important to maintain a foot position, um, fairly normal foot position. The other thing that you can do, um, for some kids that may even make a small bit of a difference, is to put a heel lift in their shoe. I'm thinking more of kids with... Um, Kids with more mild cerebral palsy that have difficulty walking, um, if I put a heel lift in their shoe, then sometimes they will come out of a crouch gait position a little bit more because they're, they're lacking some gastroc length. So if I put a heel lift in their shoe, again, I may not be able to brace them, but I may be able to accommodate some of their gastroc contracture by putting a heel lift in their shoe, making their gait pattern a little bit more normalized, and less energy expenditure. Um, I think that's going to be a smaller population of who you're seeing because that would be a very, very mild child with cerebral palsy. Um, and if they have access to shoes, high-top sh tennis shoes can be used as a substitute for AFOs. Again, not quite as ideal, but I can, can, can certainly, if they're tiptoe walkers and I put a high-top shoe on or a boot on, if it's a cold climate, um, then I can kind of, in theory, it is much harder to walk on your tiptoes if you have a high top or a boot on. So I'm kind of using that to decrease how much they're toe walking, if that makes sense. So, again, these are very isolated things I would use these for, but maybe of use at some point. Whoops. I think some of the, um, as I was doing this, um, some of the most important things, I think these kids need to be touched. I think that they are shunned in the cultures that they're in. It's what I experience as they come over here is that um, these families love being in America because their child's accepted. Their child is, is embraced and is accommodated for um, as opposed to being completely shunned from society. And that obviously depends on the culture in which you're going into. But I see this so much that people are just fearful of these children with disabilities. Um, this person still has dignity no matter how much
cognition they may or may not have. Um, it's important that we show these families and communities what it is to treat them as a loved person of that community. Um, and, and be very, very careful because some of my most physically impaired children are also my brightest kids. Um, I have a little boy who, you know, is... He cannot feed himself. He can't, he can't eat, period. He's G-tube fed. He is um, extremely physically impaired. And at the age of one and a half, he knew what a trapezius was. You know, and just crazy things that these kids may know, but they have no way of expressing it. He cannot say yes or no to me until you get him the appropriate communication devices, and it's amazing what's in their mind. So just be really careful of that. And I think that if you can spend enough time with a child to see what they do know, and you can teach the families then, hopefully the families already know that, but I find that some families in different cultures are so embarrassed of their child also that they may not know and fully understand who their child is either. So... um, so I just thought I'd tell you about a couple of the kids that I've kind of thought about as I've done this. So I told you about Abdullahi, who is really shaped like his mom. Um, Shahad came to us, um, a very, very impaired little girl. And we figured out her yes-no system was using her eyes that her family had not yet figured out. Um, and doing a simple communication board with her made a huge difference in her joy. I mean, to see her make decisions and light up and be able to communicate with her dad and her sister was quite amazing. Um, and transfers was huge for them. She's a growing little girl that's very, very impaired. Um, and the way that they were transferring her was not safe for her or for them. Um, um, Mohammed. Um, has had a lot of skin breakdown, and so it was making sure that he was appropriately positioned. He has spina bifida, um, and had never been taught proper um, weight shifting or pressure relief type of things and was sitting on a horrible seat, causing then pressure problems. So um, that was really important for him. Alina came to us um, from an orphanage in Russia. She was probably two and a half by the time she came to America. And um, she um, essentially had just been scooting around the ground. She's she's definitely quadriplegic, um, but as soon as we put a walker in her hands, she was walking. Um, And so it it is just simple things like that that I don't think that she'd, she'd never been given the chance. You know, she'd never been taught that you can pull to stand, that you can to really encourage her mobility. Um... So you, small things can go a long way. I think one of the most interesting cases we had, um, Monib came to Mayo, um, and he had, bless his heart, pretty much always been in a prone or in a prone position because his myelomeningocele was so large; it was about the size of a basketball on the back of his back, and they didn't have access to fixing it in the country that he was from. Um, and so he was brought over by Charity Care to Mayo, and they fixed it at about the age of three. Um, and this little boy, bless his heart, was just prone his entire life. And he is now independently ambulating with just braces. Um, unbelievable story. Um, so so it's sad to me because for Monib, if I had seen him in a third world country, there's nothing I can do for this child because he has a huge 
defect on his back. Sure, we could accommodate it with seating and things like that, but until that was fixed, there was not a lot to do for pneumonia. So unfortunately, I do think as far as just therapy interventions go, you're going to be limited because you have limited resources. Um, but I think there are also some instrumental things that we can do to make differences in how they're going to look in five 15, 30 years from the point that you're seeing them. And so much of it is education to the families and to the caregivers that may be working with them in the countries that you're in. So, do you have questions? Yeah. What do you think of the Bovath or NDT treatment for cerebral palsy? I know it's maybe out there, but anything neurodevelopment training, it's using posture. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of debated right now. I think it has some fabulous implications. I still think that it has tools. I don't think you can bank everything on it, but I think it certainly is beneficial for teaching kids better movement patterns. And most of the children uh, we see are, are uh, floppy children. We mm. talk about spastic ones. And, uh, is there a treatment that you do with those? Strengthening, strengthening, strengthening. Yeah, just repeated, introducing the families to how do you get them more upright. You know, if they are too floppy to be sitting upright, families will avoid it. Whereas if you just really teach them basic strategies for how to get them supported enough to do it, with repetition, they can improve. I love the ball. Yeah, absolutely. And I love standing frames. I love all of that. But again... If you don't have access to it, then it's difficult. But if you do have access to it, then it's certainly they're fabulous tools to use. Yeah. Um, appreciate the great jobs you did. I guess you were a big ad. I don't know. <laughs>